0: Welcome to Nation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katarzy, and today we have the world-renowned interventional cardiologist, Dr. Nadir Ali, joining us for what is a fascinating expose into the weak science and poor outcomes associated to the current heart health hypothesis. It's crazy to hear just how loose the science is that props up these two important aspects of the current heart health dogma. Number one, that saturated fat and cholesterol are the main culprits behind heart disease and heart attacks. And number two, that lowering cholesterol through statins prolongs healthy life. Dr. Nadir Ali, in his compelling, thoughtful, and detailed way, helps bring us up to speed on complex topics in a way that makes sense to the layperson his impressive credentials and background help. You'll hear much more about his authority in this space in just a moment. In this discussion, Nadir helps us understand the old paradigm of heart health and the incorrect demonization of saturated fat and LDL cholesterol. He educates us on the roles of LDL and cholesterol in the body and provides an alternative idea as to what causes heart disease. We dig into the efficacy and side effects of heart drugs such as statins and explore the motivations at play that prevent the heart research and science from being updated. And of course, we make sure to keep this practical and not just theoretical by leaving you with practical ways in which to assess and improve your heart and overall health. This is a must listen in my opinion, as it's time to get properly educated on how to keep your heart healthy. If you're worried about your heart health or that of someone you know, then this episode will make a big, big difference. So help those around you get up to speed too by sharing this episode. You'd be giving them a gift that could extend their healthy years. As always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging us in a screenshot, whether it be in Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, check out our Be Your Best self-optimization journey. An online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details on podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Okay, let's jump straight into my conversation with the leading mind in heart disease prevention through diet, Dr. Nadir Ali. Okay, today we have an incredible, incredible guest. I am so excited to introduce him to you and for me to learn from his wisdom. He is an American-based cardiologist of 25 years and counting. He's the chairman of the Department of Cardiology at Clear Lake Regional Medical Center, California. Personally, he stumbled across a low carb way of eating many years ago on his own personal health journey. And since then is now a strong advocate for the LCHF diet format to address modern diseases associated with metabolic dysfunction as well as standing for a set of nutritional principles that support optimal human health and vibrancy. He is brave enough to use his experience and credentials to challenge the efficacy of Heart Health Pharmaceuticals and their associated research and is a leading individual in charge of redefining our understanding of the heavily demonized molecule cholesterol. Lastly, but not least, and probably most importantly for this show, He is an elegant and compelling speaker, having spoken at many reputable health conferences, podcasts, and across YouTube. Who is it? We have the kind-hearted, experienced, and courageous Dr. Nadir Ali. Welcome, Nadir.
1: Well, thank you, Steve. It's a very kind introduction. I, I I don't know if I deserve all of that, but thank you. I I, I accept it.
0: <laughs> Good. I'm glad you accept it. You deserve it. You deserve it. As I say, really, really excited to have you on the show. Um, you have had uh, a really big impact on my understanding of cholesterol and heart health, and and really just human appropriate diet. So hopefully, we can cover all of that today. Um. But maybe let's get started for those that may not know much about you. Take as long or as little as you like, probably five to ten minutes, to give us a bit of a background as to you vocationally and your personal health journey, and then we can key off from there with getting into some of the detail.
1: Uh, sure. I want to start out uh, by saying hello to your viewers, to people who listen to your podcast. I don't think I've had uh, that much uh visibility across the pond. Uh, I guess most people know me out here in the US, some in Australia. So I've been a cardiologist, an interventional cardiologist. I go in and put in stents and I open up the blood vessels of the heart and somebody who comes in with a heart attack or if they have a severe blockage and are having symptoms of chest discomfort uh, as a result of that blockage. So I've done that for roughly about 30 years, and in the early part of my career, I found myself so good at being able to open up these blood vessels. In other words, for whatever reason, I had an aptitude of opening up these blood vessels safely, whether somebody came in with a heart attack or had severe blockages. And I was more or less disenchanted by office-based cardiology practice. So what I mean by that is that when patients came to me with high cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, I found that what I was doing in terms of the traditional medical advice and mostly medications that the medical professionals dispense when somebody comes in with a medical problem, was more or less ineffective. Uh, I I didn't find anybody losing weight. I didn't find anybody's blood pressure improving despite being on multiple blood pressure medicines. I found that even though I could reduce their cholesterol, it didn't make any impact in terms of how many people ended up back in the cath lab with heart disease. And of course, diabetes kept getting worse. Obesity kept getting worse throughout my career. So I used to tell my colleagues that, look, I'm just gonna fix them when they have a blockage in the cath lab. I, I don't even want to be in the office. And I would go to the office grudgingly to see patients. And over a period of time, I have always been physically very active. Like for example, if I take the last 40 years of my life, I can count on my hands the number of weeks that I did not exercise. So I guess uh, I am wired to exercise. Mm. And at, in roughly around 2012 time frame, I found myself gaining weight. I, I just couldn't understand why I was physically very active, and I now am about about 140 pounds. It's hard for people to imagine that at one point I was 180 pounds. And at that time I was an avid cyclist. I had been a cyclist since early 2000s and I would put in about 10 to 12,000 miles. That would be about 20,000 kilometers every year. And I was part of a racing team. I was a physician for my racing team, and I wanted to keep up with my uh, colleagues, and and I couldn't um, because I felt I was a little too heavy. And I tried my best to lose weight, and I couldn't, and I was really surprised by that. I would lose a few pounds, I'd starve myself, I would exercise more, but very soon it would come right back up. So at that time, I was looking at uh, Tour de France one day, and Chris Froome was shepherding uh, Bradley Wiggins to victory, and looking into Chris Froome's uh, history, I found that he also had lost weight, and there were some reports that he was a low-carber. So that kind of irked my interest, and then... I started hearing some podcasts and there was a podcast by an Australian rugby physician, uh, Zeeshan Arian, And he was talking about uh, the amount of glycogen we have as a reserve fuel and how much fat we have as a reserve fuel and how a fat adapted athlete could do well in endurance sports. So it irked my interest, I said, why have I not looked into this? And that's my first introduction to low carb. And I started practicing low carb myself. And as soon as I did that, I noticed that I dropped my weight immediately from 180 to 160, then to 150 pounds uh, within a matter of a few months. And I found how easy it was so I said if it works for me why have I never tried it in my patients and that was a transformative moment for me because at that point I said I need to learn more and more about this and I found that there was minimal knowledge and experience with low-carb diet and mainstream medicine it was all at the fringes of mainstream medicine, there were YouTube podcasts, there was Low Carb, Down Under. And I started devouring this information and the more I got interested and the more I started preaching this, I saw that the health of my patients improved. And that was a dramatic moment for me. And I said, look, I am having patients who are 70 years of age, 80 years of age, 90 years of age, coming to me, listening to my advice, and losing between 30 and 50 pounds in six months, uh, getting off their blood pressure medicines, improving their diabetes, uh, getting off their walkers, I've always been a statin skeptic. I've always been a cholesterol skeptic all my life. And I was never one to wholly endorse the use of statins. I would always have a discussion with them about the degree of benefit, the degree of risk. Um, For the longest period of time, I've been a fan and a follower uh, of uh, Malcolm Kendrick, Mm -hmm and so i had you know this kind of reinforced uh, that viewpoint and when i became a low carber myself i found myself to be what we now know as a, a lean mass hyperresponder and uh, in the beginning that was very troublesome to me and since it was so troublesome and i was seeing the same response in my patients i decided this is something I need to know as to why it is happening. So that was a long introduction, I think, uh, about how my journey started. And um, it's a great, uh, it's
0: great. By the way, now, that that was great, and actually, your your moment of pause is the perfect opportunity for me to jump in and kind of start directing the question. So thank you for that. that was brilliant. Um, you, sp- you just spoke briefly about lean mass hyper responders. Let's just be clear what that is for individuals that aren't, aren't familiar. So my understanding, these are individuals that when they go low-carb, high-fat, uh, their cholesterol levels increase to levels way above uh, what is considered healthy. Is that correct? Their LDL yeah. levels.
1: Yes, and, and the cholesterol and LDL follow the same trajectory because about two-thirds of your cholesterol is LDL in any, in any person. So when your LDL levels go up, your cholesterol levels go up also, but I was hesitating to say that, uh, it is unhealthy. It's unhealthy because that's what mainstream medicine seems to think. That's what, that's what
0: I meant in terms of the observed healthy status,
1: right? It's out of range,
0: right? You would be out of range in terms of quote unquote healthy parameters.
1: That's absolutely correct. And uh, the cholesterol levels I have seen in lean mass hyper-responders, many, many patients who have an LDL level between 400 to 500, total cholesterol levels from 600 to 800.
0: That's massive, isn't it? In comparison to the quote-unquote norm, right? It's pretty high. Yeah.
1: These would be considered people who are... um, have familial hypercholesterolemia, but when you delve back into their history, you find that uh, they had normal LDL levels, like right around 120, 150, not anywhere in the familial hypercholesterolemia range uh, when they were not on a low-carb diet, when they were not fasting. Uh, whether we're not practicing all the things that the low carb community now seems to say, hey, let's let's do this to optimize our health. So yes, I'm glad you corrected me when I just left a term, lean mass hyperresponder, without explaining what it meant.
0: Well, thank you for explaining. So um, th- where I'd like to key this off, um, and we've had Dave Feldman on the show, by the way. So um, I understand that you guys see see many things similarly, but also there are some viewpoints that uh, you differ on in terms of, I guess, the mechanism or the process or the use of cholesterol in the body. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that in a moment. But before we do, um, could you just lay out for us what the heart health hypothesis is? So the ideas that support our institutional nutritional guidance that we have today and our standard healthcare, what what drives that? What is the belief system that really encourages how we look after our people today, currently,
1: traditionally? That's a good question. Because even up till now, the mainstream medicine's view is that uh, saturated fat and cholesterol drive heart disease. That the more saturated fat you eat, the higher your cholesterol and LDL is the strongest culprit or the strongest cause of why anybody would get plaque buildup in the blood vessels of their heart, and then by extension, plaque buildup in the blood vessels that supply your brain, leading to increased risks of heart attacks and strokes. And I think that the low-carb community has done a very good job of debunking that in so many different ways. and. Uh, At this point, I think that it would be probably wise to move beyond that and say, hey, we have kind of covered this to death and we just have to agree to disagree that uh, the mainstream medicine and people like me just don't agree on that point. I would just leave your audience with a few things that uh, would probably make a little bit of sense for them. I have a colleague, he is a surgeon who does bypass surgeries for the last 50 years. And he says in 50 years of his life, he has operated on so many people and has seen extensive plaque buildup. And in his mind, when he delved into the patient's chart, it had nothing to do whether the cholesterol was high or low. I myself have taken care of several people in their 80s and 90s with their LDL cholesterol over 200. I've taken them to the heart cath lab. I've taken pictures of their blood vessels of their heart. And I have found many of them have completely normal blood vessels angiographically. What that means is that that's the radiographic picture of the blood vessel of the heart. And these people have had a high cholesterol level all their life. So to me, the inconsistencies of high LDL and lack of plaque buildup is perhaps one of the strongest refutations that it may not be causal in heart disease. And then also the work of Malcolm Kendrick and many other of his colleagues who have shown that as we get older, people with a higher total and LDL cholesterol seem to do well from several standpoints, all cause mortality. They do better from the standpoint of reduction and the risks of cancers. They have better cognitive ability. They even have a lower risks of dying from heart related causes. So to me, it makes no sense for the medical professionals to make LDL a culprit. Uh, I, I really don't think it is, and I have done my best to dispel that notion uh, through many talks and many YouTube videos.
0: Maybe it would be a good place now. We was going to talk about it later, but this might be a good keying off point to help people wrap their head around that because you're saying something that to some people, to some listeners of the show, uh, they may have not gone through Dave Feldman's discussion with me or other discussions where we've discussed some of the issues with uh, demonizing saturated fat, but maybe it's a good time to kind of maybe look at the data a little bit. And I know you've spent a lot of time doing this. So whether it be pharmaceutical studies or or pharmaceutical side effects, why is, is, is it true perhaps that the, the pharmaceutical cure can sometimes be worse than the disease it's trying to cure. And are the, is the data, the studies that have been done over decades, many decades, is there a really strong link that encourages us to continue um, our standard of care and our treatment and um, the way in which we evaluate risk of heart disease? Does, is the data there? Is it strong?
1: I think the data is pretty weak when you look at absolute risk reduction. So maybe we should go in a little systematic way. And the systematic way would be to see why is the LDL there in the first place? Okay. So the way best way to describe that is that the cholesterol and fat are fatty substances that don't dissolve in water. Like I've been known to show that you put a little oil in a beaker of water, that oil and water remain separate. They don't interface with each other. And similarly, our blood is aqueous. That means it's watery and it cannot carry cholesterol and fat in the bloodstream. And in order to carry it in the bloodstream, it makes these molecules, these lipoprotein molecules, and one of them is LDL. So basically, LDL is a kind of a boat, like a ship or a submarine, and it is dissolvable in blood, and the cargo of that is not just cholesterol, but CoQ10, fat-soluble vitamins, many other substances, including triglycerides or fat, fat energy. And these molecules have been evolutionarily conserved. In other words, you can find similar molecules even in insects. So they have evolved over a period of time. And the reason for that evolution is that they have a biologic function. Now, unfortunately, they have been so demonized that if you were to go and ask an average medical person, like, let's say, And you take 100 physicians and you ask them, is there a biologic role of LDL, so-called bad cholesterol, in our body? And they would perhaps not be able to come up with one function. But the primary function that I think we can address first is host defense. So in other words, these molecules are capable of binding and neutralizing bacteria and viruses. Very important factor right now when we are faced with a pandemic. So there is an evolutionary design. I have spent a YouTube video talking about that. Uh, Some of your viewers who are interested may look into that. The second important factor about this is energy delivery. In a, that's what Dave Feldman talks about. These molecules, the father of LDL, which is VLDL, is carrying triglycerides, um, fat energy, so that it can distribute that fat energy to muscle cells that need it or deposited in fat tissue so that it can be used later. The third function one can come up with is CoQ10. Now, coq is a cholesterol byproduct. It is made through the same pathway through which our body is making cholesterol. And the CoQ10 is an important factor for your muscle function. So, in other words, your muscles use CoQ10 to be able to make energy. In the mitochondria of our muscles, the CoQ10 is a factor that lets you make wattage. So, like I'm a cyclist, so when I'm pumping down on my pedals, I'm creating energy, which is measured in terms of watts. The muscles make something called ATP, which is our body's energy currency. And in order to make that, they have to have CoQ10. Fat-soluble vitamins are carried by the LDL. Now the LDL may also be a repair mechanism, you know, I've put out a YouTube video which I'm very proud of. It's not gained as much traction, and I hope that people who are listening to this will go and watch it. And I'm asking the question out there, is LDL an injured, is oxidized LDL an injured firefighter, or is it an arsonist? Mm -hmm. Because I think our body designed the LDL to soak up inflammatory damage. So in other words, if your blood vessel got injured, the injury is an oxidative injury, which means it's a burn injury. And the LDL goes out there to help repair. And in the process of helping repair it, it itself gets oxidized. And our body has mechanisms of picking up that oxidized LDL. So instead of considering an LDL as a causal factor, the... the uh, Metaphor or the analogy that I have given to people is that if you went to a scene of a fire and you saw firemen out there, you would not say that the firemen caused the fire. They're just there because there was a fire that they went to put out. Same is the case with the LDL. If you find LDL present in a plaque that's built up in the blood vessels of your heart, there is no definite scientific evidence that it caused it. If you delve into the literature, it could very well be that LDL is there as a mechanism to heal that damage. So that's in a brief uh, overview as to the functions of LDL. And then We can move on into the statins if you so prefer, but let me give you a pause to see if you want to unpack any of this or if you want to clarify any of this.
0: Thank you, Nadir. I appreciate that. Um, Wouldn't mind you, without spending too much time, just giving us a sense as to how um, you believe or how the science um, demonstrates the the kind of uh, immunoprotective uh, aspects of LDL. What's going on there in a nutshell?
1: The body is fascinating. Um, It has a mechanism to upregulate the amounts of LDL in the setting of an infection, in the setting of inflammation. So a liver has this uh, protein molecule, which is called PCSK9. So PCSK9 is, uh, and I'm going to throw out a medical term, which is called an acute phase reactant. What that means is that it is something our body releases from the liver in response to an infection, in response to an inflammation. So that's the reason the term acute phase reactant comes in. And as the PCSK9 levels, so this is a protein that the liver is making go up, it goes and removes the LDL receptor from the liver, So LDL is this circulating submarine that's carrying cholesterol and CoQ10 and fat-soluble vitamins. It's got virus-neutralizing capabilities, and you want more of that present in the circulation in the setting of an infection, setting of an inflammation, because it's going to deal with the infection, it's going to dampen the inflammation. So PCSK9 comes in and it removes or downregulates the receptor through which LDL is taken up by the liver so that LDL levels go up. Right. So this, this is a mechanism through which the body is responding to an infection. There are other factors that I can go into which talk about how LDL neutralizes infection. In the setting of an infection, like let's say somebody has a lung infection, the bacteria causing a lung infection release a certain protein into the lungs to check and see if the environment is favorable for them to multiply and gain a foothold and cause an infection. So that protein factor is sensed by the LDL, and then the LDL neutralizes that protein. Now, this got a very nice term. It's called quorum sensing. So LDL is doing quorum sensing and preventing the protein from telling back the bacteria that, hey, environment is favorable, let's multiply. So it neutralizes that.
0: That's
1: fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating. Many of these bacteria, they release certain products into the bloodstream. These are called lipopolysaccharides. In other words, this is just small bits and pieces of bacterial membrane. And that creates an inflammation in our body. The LDL is designed to take away that lipopolysaccharide or the LPS so that inflammation is dampened. So there is unquestionably a lot of data, even clinical data, like for example, the group of Malcolm Kendrick has shown that people who are born with very high cholesterol levels because their liver lacks a receptor to remove the LDL from circulation, these people have a lower risks of infections. They die less from infectious causes. There is a group out of Leiden, uh, Netherlands, that looked at people in their 80s to 90s. And they found that people with the highest cholesterol level in that group had the lowest risks of getting pneumonias or infections that lead to death in this older population. So there is adequate amount of information that high levels of LDL will protect you from infections and inflammation. And I'm shocked to see that this is something that the mainstream medicine has not given any credibility to at all. Uh, this is something that they should focus on and say, hey, this is evidence that we should take a look at and be bothered when we try to reduce the LDL cholesterol to such a low level as we are trying to achieve To Supposedly prevent heart disease, and it,
0: would you say that the reason why there's been so little research is that we have a worldview. view, we have a, um, a a medical dogma as it relates to the the roles and the uh, I guess the um, nefarious activity of cholesterol. that's that knowledge or that those hypotheses were placed upon our medical institutions, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And and as a result, all research and all dollars are in support of further supporting that worldview versus considering an alternative. Is Is that the kind of situation we're dealing with? Or is there lots of funding that is actually demonstrating that we may have had it wrong?
1: Well, there's actually very little funding to ever question whether we have had the primary hypothesis wrong. Um, There is a, a lot of funding from pharmaceutical industry, and it's just taken as a dogma that is unquestionable that high LDL cholesterol is detrimental to our health and damaging. So very few people are even going to question that dogma. They're going to say this is proven beyond any doubt and there is no reason for me to take a second look at it
0: why do you think that and- is what why, why do you think there's because you know good science is 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 about con- consistently or continuously challenging your positions you know be willing to be proved wrong because you learn why do you think there's this uh, resistance to challenge that position is it is it is it monetary is it is it based on some other institutional kind of culture is there is it egg on your face is it pride what is it that's driving this unwillingness to say we might have this wrong
1: i'd like to think that it's a combination of all of this but i think the primary driver uh, is the pharmaceutical industry making such huge profits from the sale of drugs any drug and the conflict of interest is pervasive. Back in the 60s and 70s, medical research used to be free of conflict of interest. Uh, The pharmaceutical industry or the NIH or uh, NICE or an equivalent body in the UK would fund uh, research and it would be hands off. But right now for clinical research, The industry controls almost every single aspect of that research because they are funding the institution, they are funding the principal investigators, they have their own biostatisticians, they collect all the data. The FDA in the United States, in large part, the funding for new drug approval comes from the pharmaceutical industry. The journals depend a lot in terms of revenue from reprints, from advertising. The funding for American Heart Association or similar bodies is primarily through the pharmaceutical industry. There's just a recent article uh, that was uh, put on Twitter by Trollokian uh, about the amount of funding that board members of major medical organizations got in the last two years that they tested. So they tested two years, and I think 16 and 18 or 17 and 18 uh, in the United States. And I want you to guess over a two-year period, the board members that were on the board of major organizations like American Diabetic Association, American College of Cardiology, how much funding they got from the pharmaceutical industry over a two-year period. As an absolute number or as a percentage? As an absolute number. Like, just guess.
0: So how much they would get individually? Um, 10
1: million? 10 million each? So the... Uh, amount they got over two year period for the whole board uh, that means multiple different organizations was 130 million okay so each particular board member may have gotten an average based on what organization that they belong to somewhere in the range of and I, i'm making a guess out here so i don't want to be uh, firm about it between 200 to 500000 dollars a year
0: as personal as personal income versus towards
1: their so, organization so usually this is how the income is given either as consulting fee or as honoraria, or as fee for doing research so right. it's given to your organization and the organization turns around and gives it back to you as your salary got it so uh But my whole point of trying to put this out is that the conflict of interest is pervasive at every single level. It's, you know, I have put up, there's a YouTube talk that I have, which says, do statins prevent or cause heart disease? And in that, I have a slide that talks about the conflict of interest in a clinical study done sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry at every single step. So to get objective information is likely to be wrong, but it's it's deeper than that. If you are doing clinical trials to answer a question, whether a drug is helpful or no, you're perhaps even asking the wrong question because you are eliminating human biology. You are eliminating whether a lifestyle intervention would have been better. You would eliminate whether exercise, nutrition, fasting, um, are these options not to be explored before you end up giving somebody a uh, medication that puts the whole system the homeostasis of the body into a curveball you will also influence medical school education because medical school education now becomes more and more drug therapy oriented it would not be holistic like your organization is trying to do so those are the kinds of questions that we should be asking.
0: It's, it's multi-layered, as you say, starting from the schooling and I guess I guess speaking out of turn or trying to prove something that is considered done and dusted, already th- proved, trying to disprove it, I guess wouldn't get a lot of credit within your organization, within your peer group,
1: probably wouldn't get much funding as a result. Is, is that fair? I think that's more than fair. but You're stating it very mildly in a, and in a very uh, polite and tactful manner, unlike somebody like me. <laughs> I could be a lot worse. <laughs> okay, so, so there, there, is, there, are,
0: there are institutional reasons um, that make it difficult to step outside of um, traditional norms or uh, considered truths. What about interventional trials as it relates to nutrition? So not just to test uh, the efficacy of a drug, um, but are clinical trials um, funded appropriately with appropriate level of funding and impartiality um, from the pharmaceutical uh, industry to look at uh, dietary choices? Is, is this just a small little sliver of where the funding goes? Is it done? Is it done um, with, with due care and attention and with a desire to find truth? I, I'm just trying to understand because you hear it all the time that there are medical journals and there are published papers on uh, the effects of nutrition on the human physiology. So I'm guessing this must, there must be tons of research that proves that
1: saturated fat is bad for you. Actually, there isn't any research that has conclusively proven that saturated fat is bad for you. In fact, every single time that they tried to implicate saturated fat and did all kinds of research for over 50 years, every time either they have come out with either a negative study or they have come out with outcome favoring saturated fat. And the low-carb community should take credit that they have done multiple, multiple studies in which saturated fat, low-carb lifestyle, fasting have all led to significant improvements in clinical biomarkers of health. Uh, Lower sugars, lower blood pressures, lower inflammation markers, better quality cholesterol, lower insulin levels. So, I I can go on and on. The kind of nutrition research that was supported was uh, research that in which they would gather uh, information of what somebody ate over several year time period by administering what is called a food frequency questionnaire. Mm -hmm. So you would get a question about once every six months uh, that, you would have to fill out. It would be a multi-page uh, uh, form, and your recall of what you ate last week, how many times you ate apples, you know what quantity, how many times you ate meat. It's the recall is never going to be accurate, and many people are going to err on the side of looking like they are good people because apparently good people don't eat processed meat. Uh, Good people don't eat um, a lot of fat. So in other words, I think that the data that went into that was more or less inaccurate. So the old old saying kind of holds here, garbage in and garbage out. So when you take food frequency questionnaire-based clinical studies that have been well-funded by the NIH. And I don't know why, but only one specific organization seems to get the bulk of that funding, and uh, that is the Harvard uh, unit that looks into it. And I would say that that is not robust science at all. So nutrition research, I think, has to be done very vigorously. Uh, It has to be done to first see whether you are asking the right questions. One variable has to be adjusted, not multiple different variables. Mm -hmm. So I I think I want to leave it at that and see whether you have any comments with regards to what uh, my viewpoint out there is.
0: Yeah, so there must be, right? If if you look at the AHA, so American Heart Association, NIH, or other bodies, uh, yes, receive funding from some of the industry players. Uh, but they are. They are conducting RCTs, um, clinical trials, interventional trials, with changing nutritional parameters in someone's diet. I mean, they are, right? It would be wrong of me to say they're not, surely,
1: Oh, well, I, I don't think that they have done any uh, recent uh, nutritional manipulations at all. Uh, most of the clinical trials that have been run by these people are um, the randomized trials are all based on pharmaceutical interventions. Uh, recent uh, robust clinical trials on nutritional parameters have been few and far in between. Really? Uh, the people who are doing that right now are the people who are in the low carb community. So, independence and, basically. Small trials uh, funded independently. Um, and uh, many of them have come out with outcomes that I talked about. Uh, there is a list uh, like uh, your colleague Sam Feltman. Um, at Public Health Collaboration on his site has the number of nutritional trials that have been done with a low-carb lifestyle or with fasting and low-carb lifestyle together. And I think at this last count it was over 30 that have shown a robust improvement in the surrogate endpoints that I talked about. A surrogate endpoint is an endpoint in which you say, hey, if your cholesterol quality improved, that is good. That means it's going to lead to longer life, lower risks of a heart attack. If your insulin level reduced, that's a good fi- finding because that's you can extend that observation to saying that it's going to lead to a better quality of life. And so and so for improvement in blood sugars and all that. So these are called oh. surrogate endpoint uh, clinical trials. Now, A clinical trial that is powered to look at outcomes data, which means that, hey, is there a lower risk of heart attacks? Is there there a lower risk of mortality? Mortality meaning dying uh, from a certain cause or all-cause mortality, dying from any cause. There are no mortality trials right now in terms of dietary interventions. Like let's say you take a group who is eating a low-fat diet you know, the the traditional American, standard American diet, low-fat, low-cholesterol, and compare them with somebody who is using a high-fat, low-carb diet. The outcome trials have not been done. There is no funding. Uh, The pharmaceutical industry is clearly not interested in that. Mm. The food industry is clearly not interested in that. So the interest just falls on to smaller organizations who are trying to put together uh, this information there is no money to be made in it um, and, and um, i actually- and unfortunately and unfortunately that that
0: then is that then falls on deaf ears right because they're small they're independent they're not quite approved they can just be dismissed as bias, as individuals that want to prove their hypothesis and is doing so with their own money, their own capital, their own effort, um, I could see the challenges. And and what you've rightly said, right? You know, conducting a trial that is going to be multi-generational or multi-decade to see what the long-term health outcomes of a dietary choice, one, to manage manage what that person or those group of people eat is going to be a challenge in its own Right but just the cost and the administration to follow these people on in almost perpetuity uh, these these a couple of these studies have been done right but um they're far and few between they're old data and they cost incredible amounts of money so as a result of that they're not going to happen unless someone's motivated to kind of
1: bankroll it and and you're right about that it's not it would be wrong to say that None of these uh, demographic people are being followed, like there's a large cohort of people, the Fra- Framingham data is being followed. Uh, but it's also being followed from a standpoint of some degree of bias. And despite that bias, they have never been able to conclusively prove that saturated fat or cholesterol is strongly implicated in heart disease. But you know, let's not kind of get into the futility of whether there is enough information that saturated fat causes or does not cause heart disease because we have agency. Uh, humans have agency. We have critical thinking ability and your viewers are smart individuals. They can evaluate things for themselves. And one of the great things that has happened with the advent of social media, of the internet, of organizations like you, is that there has been, there has been a leveling of information. Mm. An ordinary person without any scientific background can take a look at this data and do some critical thinking for himself. So I tell my patients, I don't want you to take anybody's word for it. I want you to do your own critical thinking. Take my advice. Go and start doing the fasting like I recommend. Go and cut out the refined carbs and sugars that I'm trying to tell you to do. And then observe over a period of a month, three months. Is that helping your sugars? Is that dropping your weight? Is that helping you Get rid of some of your medications. Are your blood sugars better? And it's only after they have done this critical thinking and they have come to realize that, hey, these simple lifestyle interventions have made me feel better and have improved my health. That is what I want people to do. I want people to use their own agency as far as their healthcare decisions are concerned, and never take an advice without challenging it. That's when we will improve.
0: Totally agree. I think we do, we need to increase our level of skepticism. Um, We, I feel more than ever in 2020, in June 2020, um, we are falling for manipulative information that, hits our social feeds with incre- with increasing amounts and it's becoming almost impossible to get through to people because of this kind of clip bake and a kind of assumptive um, support for anything that comes across like it's coming from an authority like a, an authoritative uh, news outlet uh, and yeah I'm getting frustrated by that and I, I agree critical thinking is absent and the more we can kind of drive to ask more questions and uh, look at things from multiple angles you know try and debunk what you believe because there is there's a lot of information out there to do that if you just go search for it but it isn't going to find you because it's not funded to find you i think that's a really really good point but let's try and square some of this away still because we you've made you've made some claims you've you've explained some stuff which has been fantastic but in the eyes of someone who goes heart disease big killer still uh something i should be worried about um I've been told low fat is the way to go. I can't just change my worldview on this one conversation. Well, Let's kind of flesh that out. So what do you think are the causes of atherosclerosis or heart disease, heart attacks? If it's not the saturated fat and the cholesterol and the buildup and the plaque that that then creates, that's the that's the layman's understanding of what is happening here. What's the alternative hypothesis that you put out there that seems to hold water based on science that's been done so far?
1: That's a very good question. So if you say it's not uh, LDL, then what is it? And I would like to submit that probably the greatest risks of getting any disease, and there is a unifying concept all of the modern diseases. In other words, not just heart disease, but malignancies, diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, strokes. Um, These are all diseases as a result of a combination of insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, inflammatory factors that go up. And it is a combination of these factors that are leading to what we call, or like Weston Price had said, these are modern diseases. Um, We don't find, if you go to indigenous populations that have been isolated from our civilization in which uh, we have a large amount of changes in the way we consume food, the number of times we consume food, you won't find that these people have high insulin levels. They don't have high inflammation markers. They do not get high blood pressure. They do not get heart disease. They are more or less cancer-free. So I would like to submit that it is inflammation and insulin resistance that are the culprits behind These diseases. So, I guess we would have to define what insulin resistance is. Uh, Would you want
0: me to go there? uh, Yeah, that that would be fantastic. Whether it's insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, like however you want to describe this kind of metabolic dysfunction, I think is, is important to hear.
1: I think the human body was never designed to eat the amount of carbs that we are eating right now. One of the carbs that we have is refined carbs, like grains, even healthy whole grains, Um, the amount of sugar in our diet, the amount of processed food that is very rich in refined carbs. So as a result of that, we are eating several times a day. And when we eat several times a day, you're making your insulin levels go up. So you would say, why is insulin needed when you eat food? The reason insulin is needed is because when sugar or glucose gets into your circulation, by the way, sugar is uh, glucose and fructose, uh, which means that there are two similar sugar molecules that are bonded together, but when it gets into our bloodstream, it is glucose and fructose. The insulin is released to remove the glucose from the circulation. Uh, Glucose enters the bloodstream, the pancreas releases insulin, and the insulin levels go up. We were never designed to have such a significant amount of glycemic load, which means a load of carbohydrates uh, injected into our bloodstream. And as the insulin levels go up, it starts packing the fat and the glucose into our cells. And when our cells, when our liver cannot use the amount of glucose that is coming in, it converts that to fat, that gets transported to our blood cell, to our fat cells, and the fat cells get overpacked. We are not giving our body a chance to get the insulin levels down on a regular basis. So when your insulin levels are continually high, you get what is called insulin resistance. The best way for me to explain that is to give a metaphor, an analogy about opioid addiction, morphine addiction or or similar drug addiction. When you first take an opioid drug, it has a lot of analgesic effect. That means pain relief. It has a lot of euphoria. That means a a good feeling. The reason for that is because the opioid goes and sits on the opioid receptor and it mediates its effect But as you keep taking the opioids, the opioid receptor down-regulates, it it comes down. This is a natural way through which our body works. So similarly, when your insulin levels are continually high, the body down-regulates the insulin receptor And you need more and more insulin so that you can deal with the amount of carbs that you're eating, with the amount of fat, because in order to pack fat, you also need insulin. The body does not like to leave fat energy in the bloodstream either. It needs to either use it or pack it into the fat cells. So as your insulin levels are going up, you're down-regulating the insulin receptor And you're creating havoc because now your brain that depends on insulin sensitivity to get the glucose into its brain cells to have the right energy does not function well. The cells that need glucose for energy cannot take in the glucose because insulin is not working well and they are fuel starved. So when this thing happens, the liver starts putting out a lot of inflammatory factors. Your CRP levels go up. Your coagulation factors, the the ones that make blood thick and make it coagulate, they go up. The liver starts putting out a lot of fat energy into the bloodstream because it's not knowing what to do with all the glucose that it's coming into it, it cannot use it, so it converts it into fat. So in other words, the whole basis for modern disease is the presence of insulin resistance and and inflammation that is causing the problems that we just defined. It also leads to very poor cholesterol quality, because what's happening in these individuals is that their triglycerides, which is fat in the bloodstream, is going up. Why is it going up? The reason it's going up is because the liver is putting out a lot of triglycerides, but the body is incapable of using it. And your fat cells are already too full, and so you cannot pack the fat into the fat cells. Mm. And ultimately, the fat cells get so full that they start getting inflamed, and the inflammation then spills out into the rest of the body. So that, in a sense, is an alternative theory that I'm putting out rather than implicating the LDL cholesterol as a causal factor in vascular disease.
0: Love that. That was really, really well Um, put together and you stitch together a few different ideas all into one. So that was fantastic. It doesn't, though, describe why the heart is failing or there's atherosclerosis. How would you then attach this idea of inflammation, overflow hypothesis, too much triglycerides, low quality cholesterol? How does that then manifest into a heart that starts to dysfunction or plaque buildup?
1: Fantastic question. What you are basically saying, how can I tie this together to vascular disease? And the way I would do that is inflammation damages different parts of the body. It damages the lining of our blood cells. And when the lining of the blood cell is damaged, there is inflammation going on in that location. The body then sends out many uh, of the inflammatory dampening mechanisms. Perhaps one of them is LDL. And LDL has come in there to dampen that inflammation. And many times it does it effectively. And that oxidized LDL is taken up. By certain blood cells that we have, which is called macrophages. And many times it is cleared. But if inflammation is happening repeatedly and it is overwhelming our compensatory mechanisms, then you would do, you would get plaque buildup. You would get inflammation in which a bunch of blood cells that our body is using to dampen the inflammation get aggregated in the wall of the blood vessel. The LDL comes in out there as a mechanism to dampen the inflammation. And that's why you see cholesterol in the plaque. And in many times I have said that I I feel like I do not want to call it an atherosclerotic plaque because just by using that term atherosclerosis, because atheroma implies that it is related to fat as if fat is causal in that mm. i think inflammation is causal in that and the cholesterol from the ldl has come in as a repair mechanism if got if caught up me-
0: in it basically got, got caught up in this kind of uh chronic inflammation and, and and trying to repair the inflammation if that's what we're seeing in the plaque. But why why specifically the heart? Why the arterial walls? Why why there? Why not everywhere? Why are we not seeing this damage everywhere? Why is the heart so susceptible?
1: The blood vessels of the heart probably are of the right size, and uh, the architecture of them probably predisposes. The, those blood vessels, a little bit more to plaque buildup. But it would be wrong to say that you are having plaque buildup only in the blood vessels of the heart. This is a systemic process. If you look at the blood vessels supplying the legs, you see plaque buildup in that. If you see the blood vessels supplying the brain, you would see plaque buildup in that location. Okay, So it's a systemic process Perhaps in certain individuals, it affects the heart a little bit earlier than other locations, but there are many subsets, perhaps because of genetics, perhaps because of some other factors that we don't completely understand. In home, they manifest peripheral vascular disease first, which means blockages in the blood vessels supplying the legs or they get renal artery stenosis, which means they block the blood vessels supplying the kidneys. So I think it would be wrong to say that this is just a process that's limited to the blood vessels of the heart. It is systemic. It is everywhere.
0: But at the heart, one, one it's a vital organ that you know needs to work and operate and is under lots of load and lots of pressure. Secondly, there's turbulence and stuff going on there too. Thirdly, uh, you're saying like the size and the structure, um, perhaps allows for more inflammation, allows for more plaque to build up uh, versus small vessels in other parts of the body, perhaps it's just less damage that can be caused, albeit damage is still being caused. Is that Would that be a fair summation?
1: I would say so, Steve. I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, there are certain things that I missed that you added on. One of them is turbulence, uh, blood flow, When it is laminar, that means it's a smooth flow, is less likely to cause endothelial damage, where blood vessels bifurcate. In other words, where they divide into branches, uh, especially in the heart, the turbulence can increase. So there are certain physical factors that would make the blood vessels of the heart a little bit more predisposed to uh, plaque buildup or damage or injury. Uh, as a result of these factors. So it's it's great having you as a moderator because where I miss, you fill in the gaps.
0: I just keep listening to your stuff. So <laughs> it's, it's starting to register, it's not a feature. Um, here's, here's, I'm going to ask something now that um, is puzzling me and I think will puzzle a lot of people. So let me kind of lay out this question. So if you look at the trends, if you do a quick Google search and you look at trends for, uh, Western disease and, and inclu- inclusive of that would be forms of heart disease. You'll see that cardiovascular disease is trending down and has been trending down for 50 or so years. And I'm sure there's lots of pats on the back to the pharmaceutical industry and the interventions at a nutritional level across governments for the reason why cardiovascular disease, disease on any of these graphs I look at is on the decline. Whereas If you take a look at these other Western diseases, so if you take a look at um, diabetes, autism, dementia, um, chronic respiratory diseases, cancers, I believe, they seem to be trajectory up. Now, part of what you've said makes sense then. So if this modern lifestyle, this modern overburden of glucose through uh, frequent eating and eating the wrong foods perpetually, is overburdening the body, causing inflammation, causing insulin resistance. Then these, you know, these autoimmune conditions or conditions of diabetes, dementia, autism, cancers, those things. Okay, you'd expect them to go up, but why is heart disease going down? Are they all interrelated, or is there something else that's making that unique? Or can we say actually it's the statins, it's the other pharmaceutical aids? And it is the low-fat diet that is helping that trend down.
1: I think that it's uh, what you're saying is uh, probably. Uh, I would want to challenge that in the following way. Uh, do. Not that what you're saying is incorrect. I would say that the perception is that heart attacks are going down, uh, people are living longer with heart disease, but. The prevalence, prevalence meaning the number of people who are living with heart disease has gone up. Perhaps the incidence of heart attacks has gone down because Mm -hmm. now you have a few pharmaceutical agents that work. Like you end up having a blockage, you're taken to the hospital, a stent is placed in. Uh, You get placed on aspirin, you get placed on another blood thinner called Plavix. That's going to reduce the number of people having a heart attack. But in terms of prevalence, prevalence meaning the number of people who have heart disease has not gone down. It has
0: gone up. Do we have data to show that? Because when I was Googling, trying to look exactly for that, for incidents or cases, I was using that kind of terminology. Everything kept showing me the same graph, going down, going down, going down. And it kept wanting to show me... uh, heart disease related death and how heart disease related death is going down as you've said because we've got these means of correcting the abuse or uh, ameliorating the abuse but i couldn't necessarily find that prevalence was going up so is the data
1: there that proves that that statement absolutely if you look at see the underlying mechanisms for all of these diseases is the same so in other words When you talk about obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, and cancers, the underlying cause of this is metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and inflammation. So there is a unifying reason why you get this. If you look at the curves, the number of people who have high blood pressure has gone up. If you look at the curves, the number of people who are diabetics has gone up the obesity trends are all in the upward direction. Childhood obesity has gone up dramatically. Mm -hmm. The incidence of diabetes in children has gone up. In fact, for the first time, and I don't know if it's true for the UK, but certainly for the United States, for the first time in the history of this great nation, my children are gonna have a shorter lifespan than my cohorts. Never happened before. Every single time the next generation had a slightly longer lifespan than the previous generation. It's only because of these chronic metabolic diseases that the reason their life expectancy has gone down. The basic risk factors for getting heart disease is obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, and all of these are trending up. Mm. So it would be very hard for me to accept that the prevalence of heart disease has actually gone down. I, I do not think that there is any solid data with that regard.
0: But is, and, there, is there data to prove that prevalence has gone up? So you talk about risk factors, but is there is there more direct, um, reputable measurement that measures heart disease re- um, prevalence?
1: I would have to look into that, uh, but I would doubt very much that I would not be able to find it easily. Okay. I would say yes. I would go out on a limb and say yes. The prevalence of heart disease is higher now than it was ever before. And I'm a clinician. I see patients on a day-to-day basis, and I have been seeing patients for 30 years. And now I see younger and younger people coming in with heart disease and heart disease-related problems. So uh, in my clinical impression, I would say that I would refute saying that prevalence of heart disease has gone down
0: okay okay well that that is important to note because as i say if you do a quick google and you're not you're not quite sure what you're looking for you're going to find what i found um and to hear you know in the trenches you know the the operations or the stents or the the pharmaceutical aids they're only getting dished out or served at high frequency well that really describes prevalence is obviously not on a downward trajectory. And then when you connect it to these risk factors, we know all of those are going up. So that's, that's great. I mean, we're exposing the bit of misdirection here because I believe could be wrong. And this is the cynic in me. I believe I'm seeing what I'm seeing through Google and through my own quick little checks, because that's the message. I want people want me to know is that it's working. You keep eating your low fat diet. You keep supporting the pharmaceutical industry with um, chronic prescriptions, medications when you need it.
1: And look, we'll help you. We'll help you. Well, Steve, you know it's not working. Otherwise, you would not find two out of three Americans obese and metabolically unhealthy. Uh, So, you know, 68% of overweight and obesity. About a 50% Uh, risk of you either being a diabetic or being insulin resistant in this country. Uh, These numbers are staggering. Uh, Something has to change. What this advice about uh, uh, low-fat, low-cholesterol diet has not worked. Pharmaceutical industry has not made us healthier.
0: So I, I, that's I would. The, that's pretty. Have, it seems pretty obvious, right? We are living longer, as you you're saying that that's probably going to change. But we are living longer. We're you know we're playing God, right? We're 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 playing with uh, you know the measures, whether it be you know vaccines. Obviously, that's a topical subject right now. Whether it be vaccines, whether it be pharmaceuticals, whether it be other um, therapeutic or surgery interventions. Through those, we're 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 sustaining life longer, but. I think people intuitively know that we're sustaining a less, uh, a, a weakened quality of life. We're not sustaining vibrancy. We're not sustaining vitality. We're not living to 90 and being just, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed people. We're dying with long chronic diseases that we see our grandparents suffer through. So I think it's obvious that things aren't working, yet it doesn't seem to be obvious that oh, then maybe we'll do something different. Um, talk to me a bit about the drugs. So I'm not too familiar with kind of drug-related um, heart disease-related drugs because I've never needed to look into it, but I've heard you speak about the pharmaceutical side effects um, that sometimes seem to be worse than the supposed benefit that you're getting from these drugs. Could you just spend a minute talking about one, the efficacy? of some of these heart disease drugs, and to the consequence of you taking them long-term?
1: I'll uh, start out with statins, because I guess that would be my expertise. Um, the statin trials, if we take a look at the efficacy, and then you'd have to go back uh, to um, 1994, Uh, when the first uh, real robust clinical trial that put statins on the map, that was the Forest trial, that's the Scandinavian trial, Uh, about 4,000 patients uh, in that particular study, there appeared to be a robust benefit in terms of reducing heart attacks and deaths. But when you get into the weeds of that trial, you find that it was almost completely done by Merck. Merck hired the biostatisticians, they collected all the data, they did all the information by themselves in their own company. And even when you look at it and you say, what is the degree of benefit? And the best way to evaluate the degree of benefit of a clinical trial is to see how many people died in the group that took the drug And how many people died in the group that did not take the drug? So it's a randomized trial. Half of them were given the drug. Half of them were not. And it was blinded, supposedly. So when you look at that and you put that into numbers that laymen can understand, and if you treated 100 people with this drug, and by the way, these patients were already somebody who had either had a heart attack or had stents or had bypass surgery. So in other words, there was already evidence of established heart disease. So this is called a secondary prevention trial. What that means is that you're using the drug in somebody who has already got established heart disease in order to see benefit. And it's in science, if somebody has already had a disease, the degree of benefit is expected to be larger. So you took 100 people with established heart disease, gave them a statin and another 100 and didn't give them statin and you compared the difference in the rate of death per year. How much do you think that the difference in the death rate was in that landmark study? And by the way, nobody has ever duplicated the same degree of benefit. How many less people do you want to die by taking the drug for you to get convinced to say, hey, I will take this drug? I mean, I, I guess I want to
0: see at least a 50% uh, reduction uh, in, in death as a result. So whatever those numbers are in absolute terms, but I'd want to see a sizable uh, benefit from you know avoiding death.
1: So 50% would be a lot. I mean, that would be astronomical, but yes. I'm the optimist. I'm the wishful thinker. (laughs) The difference was about 0.6%. So in other words, if you treated 100 people with this drug, you would reduce 0.6 deaths. And this is done 1994 since then. Many people have tried to duplicate the degree of benefit but have failed to do so. Like for example, the reduction in LDL cholesterol in Forest trial was about 25%, between 25 and 30%. Now there are clinical trials that are done in 2016, 17, in which they have reduced the amount of LDL cholesterol by 60%, not 25%, but 60%. That's uh, almost two and a half fold further reduction in LDL cholesterol. Wouldn't you expect that this, since if LDL cholesterol is the culprit, that by reducing LDL cholesterol so much more dramatically that you should see an augmentation in the benefit from that intervention? Wouldn't I, that I, w- I would
0: expect them to
1: be a hell of a lot
0: healthier in whatever other... Um, measures you can you can measure, you know, vibrancy, vitality, subjectiveness, as well as, yes, a, a sizable reduction uh, in deaths as a result of yeah, that this this demonized molecule being reduced so dramatically.
1: So let me introduce you to the trial, the Fourier trial. It's a new It's a new trial in which a new drug is used. It's an injectable drug in which we reduce the LDL cholesterol and total cholesterol by almost 60%. And more people died in the group that took the drug compared to the group that did not take the drugs. Now, it's not statistically significant. But what would you tell to a layman about the hypothesis that LDL cholesterol is the culprit when you do a study in 28,000 patients, reduce the LDL cholesterol by 60% and don't demonstrate a mortality benefit.
0: That's a hard hypothesis to to put out there, but what what, what did they say?
1: Well, the spin is always there. It was reported by many, many uh, British physicians as a landmark trial, as something that was changing the whole paradigm of heart disease because when you treated 200 patients with this drug for about a year, that you reduced one heart attack. And I don't know whether that would be something that people can relate to. Uh, I find it very hard to relate to, especially when there are so many conflict of interests at every single step of a clinical trial. But let's not kind of beat the pharmaceutical industry to death, but let's just kind of consider some of the important aspects of human biology. The cholesterol is so important for the human brain. 25% of the body's cholesterol is in the brain. And the brain, makes its own cholesterol. It thinks that it is so important that it doesn't delegate that responsibility to the liver. It has its own cells. These are called astrocytes that support the brain, the brain cells, the neurons. The astrocytes make the cholesterol for the brain. There are a lot of clinical reports and my personal clinical experience over 30 years that people taking statins have significant memory issues, have cognitive decline, that a lot of patients have experienced this and reported to the pharmaceutical industry many, many times. So now there is a warning in the FDA packet for these drugs that it can lead to memory impairment. And
0: is that is that because the statin is not only reducing the the, the circulatory peripheral cholesterol but somehow is down regulating the production within the brain which is in its own right kind of an
1: isolated area that's true because many of these drugs do cross the blood-brain barrier right and the drugs there are some drugs now there is something called lipophilic and lipophobic lipophilic is a drug um, that doesn't dissolve in water, but the brain is very fatty, so it can penetrate into the brain because it's uh, it gets attracted to fat. And there are certain of the statins that cross the blood-brain barrier. And it's hard to tease out the data because nobody has really gathered it perfectly. There is no incentive to gather it perfectly. But many of the drugs that do cross the blood-brain barrier seem to have a greater impact in terms of uh, memory and cognitive decline uh, in in patients taking statins. So yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, They not only interfere with reducing LDL cholesterol in our bloodstream, but they can interfere with cholesterol production in the brain.
0: Okay, whatever side effects we got. So we've got neuro, based side effects, which are scary enough in their own right, do we see other things occur with long-term yeah. use of stains?
1: Absolutely. Um, the insulin receptor, we have talked about the insulin receptor many times uh, earlier in our uh, discussion. And the insulin sits on the insulin receptor to mediate many of the important actions that insulin does. The insulin receptor sits in an area of the membrane of our cell. So, all our cells have this membrane, this fatty membrane. It's called phospholipid bilayer. But the insulin receptor sits in an area of our cell membrane that is got a lot of cholesterol. It's called lipid rafts. The reason it's called lipid rafts is because it's very rich in cholesterol. So the cholesterol in that membrane is giving the structural integrity for that receptor to work well. And there is a significant increase in the risks of high blood sugars, of diabetes, and insulin resistance in people who are taking statins. This is not even a point that many of the statin experts will debate with you. They will concede that point, saying that yes, statins do increase the risks of diabetes, insulin resistance, and high blood sugars. We have already talked about the CoQ10 in some detail, but when you take statins, you do reduce your CoQ10 levels as well. We've also talked about infections as it relates to uh, the cholesterol molecule or the LDL molecule and there is some evidence, although it's not well gathered, that statins can affect your ability to fight infections also because your cholesterol levels, your LDL levels are reduced so dramatically. There are multiple fronts like we have pointed out from memory, diabetes, uh, and our ability to fight infections. There Mm -hmm. are other information with regards to um, erectile dysfunction. The raw materials for making testosterone comes from the LDL cholesterol. For whatever reason, uh, the human testis and ovaries, they cannot make cholesterol by themselves. They depend on LDL to supply cholesterol so that they can convert that to testosterone and estrogens. Many people are unaware that testosterone is a cholesterol byproduct, that estrogen, the female hormone, is a cholesterol byproduct. So there is an incidence of erectile dysfunction in people who are taking statins. There is evidence that you reduce your vitamin E levels in the bloodstream when you take a medicine that dramatically reduces your LDL cholesterol. So fat soluble vitamins are carried by the LDL molecule.
0: It's a pretty convincing case <laughs> <laughs> to uh, not want to mess with something that seems so central to many of our many of our bodily functions. Um, it, it, and it makes me think about this and there, like if statins are so effective at reducing cholesterol, uh, this thing that we're, we're not quite sure if we should be doing, but the if you go on a low-fat diet or, hey, let's say you go on a vegan diet, your exogenous consumption of cholesterol is going to be very low. Uh, and I know that then shows in lower blood cholesterol levels. But then I also know that the, this 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 substance, this molecule is so important to the body, it will make its own, right? So I'm trying to like marry up these two conditions, right? Reduce your cholesterol levels through dietary intervention, i.e. going on a low-fat diet, uh, or or lower it via a, a statin, but perhaps don't change your diet. Um, is one worse than the other? I, I'm suspecting the drug is probably worse because it's, it's not only dampening... Uh, what comes in is dampening what
1: you produce, which is a double whammy. Is is have I, have I got that
0: right? Am I am I making any sense?
1: You're absolutely making a lot of sense, and I agree with you. Um, in a vegan, uh, by the way, vegan people have other issues that are important, and we can discuss that at a different time. Yeah, we we, we won't
0: go there just because we, we've done we've 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 hit them hard enough with a few other podcasts. But let's just keep on the cholesterol piece.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, the body, if, if, you take, if you're making, if you're eating no cholesterol, absolutely no cholesterol, the body would make about 300, I mean, sorry, 3000 milligrams, about three grams of cholesterol on its own in the liver. So there are mechanisms that are about 30 different enzymatic steps through which our body makes cholesterol. So if you made no, if you ate no cholesterol, the body would make the amount of cholesterol that it needs from raw materials that uh, it has, from protein, from uh, from carbohydrates, from fat, because it can convert breakdown products of fat to cholesterol, uh, and that's what the brain does anyway. The brain does not import in any cholesterol; it makes its own cholesterol from raw materials. And perhaps uh, the vegans may get a double whammy if they are eating vegan food and are taking a cholesterol-reducing medicine because what happens in them, and it's been very nicely demonstrated, that if you stop the production of cholesterol in the liver and you eat a lot of plant food, you absorb plant cholesterol. Plant products don't have any cholesterol, but they have something called phytosterol. So the phytosterol is the plant equivalent of cholesterol. And so their phytosterol levels go up in vegans who are taking a statin because you're not making your own cholesterol. And higher phytosterol levels are quite damaging to the body. Your blood cells don't work. Our our, our membranes want to have our cholesterol, the, uh, the, the the real cholesterol molecule. They do not want to have the membrane's cholesterol replaced by phytosterol. Phytosterols don't function well. So in some ways they may get a double whammy because the many vegans whose body is making the amount of cholesterol that it needs But since the level appears high to traditional medicine people, they get placed on a statin,
0: their phytosterol
1: levels go up.
0: Right. But I'm guessing, and I could be completely wrong, but I'm guessing, you know, the big big push on on one of the benefits of a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet is that you typically see lower cholesterol levels. So if someone had some form of heart episode, um, and then their bloods were measured, their triglycerides may be high, but their LDL perhaps should will probably be in range or low. Um, surely from a from a prescription perspective, you wouldn't necessarily say, Oh, okay, well, let's have a statin. I know you've got some you've got some issues with, with plaque buildup, but your cholesterol level's already low. So isn't that what a physician would do? Like not, not dra- subscribe statins in that case?
1: You are right that many people who are on a vegan diet would not have as high an LDL cholesterol as somebody who is taking an animal-sourced food diet. But you would be surprised as to the number of people on a vegan diet who would have a high LDL cholesterol. There are many uh, personalities all across the world who are vegans uh, who have a high LDL cholesterol. Okay, so it's not unusual for people who are vegans to be prescribed a statin.
0: Right. Okay. Well, that was just uh, obviously a, a misconception on my part. Thank you for clearing it up. Okay. All right. I think we've covered so much. Obviously, um, so grateful for everything that you've you've answered and just you know being challenged my my curiosity and playing devil's advocate. So I appreciate that. I guess the closing part, uh, before I, I I leave you to any closing remarks you may have if you feel we've missed anything, was to think about if, if someone's listened to this now and they're going, okay, um, I think the damage is already done for me. You know, I've 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 abused my body unknowingly. I'm starting to get educated. I think, oh God, you know, the diet over the last 40 years hasn't gone well. Maybe they've had a heart attack. Maybe they've had some... Issues, uh, maybe they're being prescribed some medicine already in to, in relation to heart disease. I, I guess my question is what should they do to evaluate their heart health if they are concerned and they believe the damage is already done? And then the tack on question to that is how quickly or is it even realistic for someone to reverse or improve their heart health if there is an issue? So, question one how do they go about evaluating, the best way to evaluate uh, their their issue if LDL isn't a good marker? And two, how quickly can they improve their situation?
1: Two very good questions. I would say that um, a good clinical evaluation to see if you are insulin resistant, check your insulin and sugar levels simultaneously, get a three-month average of your blood sugar, which is called hemoglobin A1c, Evaluate your cholesterol quality. In other words, are your triglycerides high? Is your HDL, which many people call the good cholesterol, is that low? Are your inflammation markers high? So these are some of the factors that I would measure. And you would be surprised that whether you are in your 30s, 40s, 50s, or even 90s, the power of lifestyle changes. And you know, I've, in the first few years, I was a low-carb advocate. Now, I almost never talk about going on a low-carb diet without time-restricted feeding. In other words, I think that our body is designed to do intermittent fasting. Uh, if you're eating three meals a day and two snacks, Even if you're taking a low-carb diet, it may not be as beneficial for you as it would be if you give an 18-hour window on a regular basis without food because that lets your body empty the fat cells. It lets your body recover and rehabilitate the insulin receptor through which insulin works and those are the keys to health. And in my experience, I see patients on a daily basis and I am so happy and I feel like I have a sense of purpose because I see patients coming back healthier in their 80s, 90s. So there is no real, real reason to despair. Anybody is capable of recovering within right so
0: within how long so you you do those measures they don't look very good they might have some overweightness they might have some obesity too they may already have had an mi or some form of event that demonstrates their heart is compromised and they they commit they fully commit to changing their diet going low carb uh, real food high fat How quickly can you start to see not just feeling based, but measurement based and risk based? The risk is dropping and they're getting healthier. Is it, are we talking a year, two years, three years? Sooner?
1: The surrogate markers, now the surrogate markers meaning whether your insulin levels drop, your blood sugar improves, your inflammation markers improve, your cholesterol quality improves, will happen in a matter of weeks. So I would say if I measured somebody six weeks, uh, three months down the road, and they're doing what we are asking them to do, which is following a low carb diet, doing intermittent fasting, and they can augment that with exercise, although that's not always a necessary component, um, we would start seeing improvement in six weeks to three months in the surrogate markers. Now, they would start feeling better within a matter of a few weeks. Now, that doesn't mean that it happens in everyone. In some people, you have to tweak it a little bit more. Maybe they need a little longer duration of fasting to reduce their insulin levels because our biology is a little variable. We never got into... um, the hormone that opposes the actions of insulin, which is called glucagon. Maybe you are insulin resistant and you have high glucagon levels. That may be a situation in which you may have to tweak the lifestyle changes a little bit more aggressively. So in my experience, I would say to summarize that you should start expecting to feel better in a matter of a couple of weeks and your surrogate markers in terms of blood markers should start improving by about six weeks to three months.
0: That's pretty compelling. That is compelling. Is there, though, direct markers? Uh, And I may be leading the witness here a little bit, and apologies if if I'm off, but CAC scans, um, are they not a means of answering the question more directly, which is, do I have plaque buildup? Do I have calcification? of uh, of my arteries is is would you say that should be part of the you know the the measurement to understand if there are improvements specifically to the heart
1: and and that's a very good point that you brought in and I'm and I did I failed to mention in terms of the tests that we do uh, to evaluate somebody's baseline health and one of them is uh, coronary artery calcium score so The blood vessels of the heart, when they have plaque buildup, especially as you get into your late 40s and 50s, they get calcium buildup, and the calcium buildup can be measured by a CAT scan, and the amount of calcium is a marker of plaque buildup. So following plaque buildup in your blood vessels is an important marker of whether you're improving or getting worse. Um, unfortunately, you cannot do calcium scores in three months. Uh, The change would not be dramatic. So you could get coronary artery calcium scores done depending on your risk profile uh, once every two to five years. So like if somebody is coming in with high insulin levels, high sugar levels, uh, poor quality cholesterol, I would perhaps recheck their calcium score in two years. I would not recheck them in three months because the calcium score is, an, uh, is a, a study that gives you radiation and you don't want to give, the physician has to be very cognizant of doing the right thing for the patient. And the right thing for the patient would be to reduce their risks and give them as much benefit from the interventions that you do. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question about calcium scores. I,
0: I think it does. I think it does. I'm, I'm just trying to, to, to make sure that it's clear that the reduction of these surrogate markers is going to improve your metabolic health. In rep- improving your metabolic health, you're likely going to lose a bit of weight. You're going to feel better. You're going to have more energy. Uh, you are going to feel more vibrant. But if you have been... Assessed for or have already experienced some form of heart disease or or events related to your heart, um, it, it isn't necessarily a direct marker as to is has your heart health improved and and I guess a CAC is a little bit more of a direct answer to that question. Albeit, I guess I guess improving your metabolic health and reducing your blood sugar levels and increasing your insulin sensitivity in its own right is going to make your heart happier, even if it's got a plaque plaque buildup that hopefully in time will reduce. But that reduction takes time from what I understand based on your
1: answer. Is that right? I would say so. And your calcium scores may not improve. They may stabilize. In fact, I have seen very few people with <clears throat> reduction in calcium scores. But I would not despair with that because Stability of calcium score has shown that people will have just as good an outcome as if somebody who's got low calcium levels. So stabilizing your score, it not increasing any further, is a very good um, surrogate endpoint that indicates that you are lower risks of having heart attacks and vascular death and things like that. Okay, great. Thank you for clearing it up. And
0: uh, again, sorry for asking so many questions and naively ask, asking those, but you've answered beautifully. Great. Listen, we uh, this has been mammoth, uh, but fantastic. Is there anything that you, you wish I had asked or any kind of closing remarks that need to be said beyond everything that we've discussed so far? I
1: think we covered a lot of ground and uh, we could go on and on about Uh, different lifestyle interventions. But I want to just leave you with a final thought. And that final thought is that the change in medicine is not going to come from the top down. It's not going to happen that one day the major health organizations are going to wake up and say, hey, I'm gonna bring about this change. The change is gonna come from grassroots efforts like you are doing. People trying lifestyle interventions as opposed to medications, pharmaceutical interventions are perhaps not the way to go. And when people from grassroots go back and talk to their physician and say, I tried fasting And this is what happened to my blood sugar levels. I tried a low-carb diet and I stopped taking my uh, medicines to control my diabetes because my sugars were going down. My blood pressure got better. My cholesterol quality got better. I lost weight. That's when medical profession is going to change. So it's going to be a bottom-up approach as opposed to a top-down approach to bring about a change in the way healthcare is delivered. And I hope that many of us become a part of that change. Beautiful,
0: beautiful, I totally agree. We have agency and we've given too much ownership of one's health to the establishment, to these authoritative uh, figures, doctors, You know, we give them so much credit. And I don't think, I'm not trying to suggest that doctors all around the country are malicious or are are motivated to hurt you. I really don't think that's the case. But it it is clear to me that they're not necessarily being educated or reviving their education and continuing to support the latest things we're learning. They they got taught by an establishment, by an institution. They work their fingers to their bone every single day. They're not necessarily bringing themselves up to speed with what we're learning. And they're not necessarily challenging their worldviews, because it's just too, too much work. And therefore, listen to these podcasts, engage with the lights of the, the, look at the rest of your stuff and, and make a decision for yourself. But ultimately, it's about you trying it out. See what happens when you take some lifestyle interventions. And if things improve, if you feel better, look better, you know, have more energy, things are getting easier, you're not not as hungry all the time, you know, then that's that's the proof you need right and you've got agency it's all you know and you haven't you haven't had to invest or make any difficult decisions and go for surgery and sign up to chronic doses of medication that has side effects you've done it on your own that's the right way to go so I completely agree with you Nadir thank you so much for that lovely message that losing, uh, that lovely closing remark um where do people get close to you online? And what are the most important resources you want to point them towards so they can get a little bit more clued up with the nuance of your discussion and some of the more kind of detailed points that you would like to impart to them?
1: I always hesitate to try to become commercial or try to sell my wares, but I would say that um, I am best available on YouTube, if you put my name on YouTube, Nadir Ali MD, you will get most of my uh, talks in which I talk about uh, optimal diet for humans, or the benefit of vitamin D, or about cholesterol quality, or about the side effects of statins, or about fasting, or many of these other topics that very nicely and exhaustively covered. So rather than giving you many, many links, I would say just put my name in YouTube or in Google, Nadir Ali MD, and follow where that takes you. Beautiful, beautiful.
0: And you're also on Twitter, is that right? Are you are you active there?
1: Yes, uh, Twitter is probably one of the only social media platforms that I'm active because I have to work. <laughs> and my, my Twitter handle is Eat Mostly Fats Ali.
0: Brilliant. Good stuff. I'm, I will link to both of those resources. And if I do find one or two really poignant um, videos, I'll, I'll, I'll call those out separately. But thank you once again for being generous with your time, for being a leader, for having the bravery to kind of push against the institute, the, the, the organization or sorry, the industry in which you work within. That must come with its own challenges and its own risks. But thank you for doing that. Thank you for... you know, walking the talk and demonstrating that you can put yourself in good health, uh, good cognitive ability, uh, high fitness status by following what you're talking about. So thank you for being a leader. And uh, I wish you great health and fantastic opportunity throughout the rest of 2020. And I hope uh, our liberties return soon so you can go about and go to those conferences you do so well. Well,
1: Thank you, Steve. And uh, give me feedback uh, when you can about how the your audience received this podcast and how I could have altered and modified my message so that it reaches them better.
0: Well, just before you go, I want to know two things from you if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find the episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And, of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favourite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.